right, we like to do obituaries in this program every once in a while to note the passing of people whose passing should be noted. And by the way, we have not yet uh, done justice to Dick Clark, but he's on our to-do list. Although it may surprise some people, I do feel that we should commemorate the passing of actor George Lindsay, better known <laughs> to watchers of The Andy Griffith Show as Goober Pyle. And I must confess, until I read the obituary, that I was unaware of the fact that Goober was Gomer Pyle's cousin on the show. And no doubt some of you will be surprised to learn that I'm, I'm semi-fan of The Andy Griffith Show. Because, yes, I know it's ridiculously simple, and yes, I know it's... <laughs> there sometimes seem to have not been a lot there. But the show's been described as having one of the last great ensembles of, of early television, and I think that's probably true. I do think that Andy Griffith was such an incredibly good actor that you didn't think he was acting. He really became that character of Sheriff Andy Taylor. And, and if uh, you've never seen Andy Griffith in A Face in the Crowd, Elia Kazan's classic uh, about early television, I highly recommend it, along with No Time for Sergeants. And no, I'm not going to contend that George Lindsay was a classic actor, but, you know, he fit the character perfectly, and the character fit into the ensemble perfectly, and it made a show that, uh, that I just find impossible to dislike. Notes the obituaries as Goober Lindsay wore a brown felt beanie with a turned-up scalloped edge, a <laughs> tire gauge, pens, and pencils stuffed into his pocket of his work shirt, and generally walked around with a rag hanging out of his back pocket. Uh, Lindsay said, I had a lot of trouble with that part. I'd been playing a lot of heavy character roles. I'd done them on Alfred Hitchcock and The Twilight Zone and some others. And at first I find myself just doing an impression of Jim Neighbors doing Gomer. Said I finally said, look, tell me about this guy and who he is. Lindsay, Lindsay recalled that Andy Griffith told him, Goober's the kind of guy that would go into a restaurant and say, this is great salt. Lindsay added, Andy Griffith turned out to be the greatest teacher I've ever had. He kept telling me to play myself and to let it happen instead of trying to be funny. Over the years, fans of the show would often ask Lindsay to repeat a line he said during his first appearance on the series, a scene in Sheriff Andy Taylor's office in which Gomer asked Goober to do his takeoff on Cary Grant for Andy, at which point the bashful Goober gives in and delivers a humorously terrible Judy, 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 to which an impressed Gomer said, couldn't you just swear Cary Grant was right here in this room? To which Andy added, yeah, that was good, Goober. And that's why I can't dislike the show, doggone it. Of course, after Andy Griffith went off the air, uh, George Lindsay moved on to Hee Haw, which he ran until what, about two years ago? <laughs> ran, I don't know, ran from like the 60s to like the 90s. I guess it's like country music. Once you're a country music star, you're always a country music star. At least that's what Kenny Rogers uh, reasoned when he moved from being a rock and roller to a country star, and I don't know, it's worked for Kenny. And on a more serious note, a passing we also wish to note is that of Nicholas Katzenbach, the former JFK and LBJ aide who died at age 90 this week. During those Democratic administrations of the 60s, Nick Katzenbach was uh, at the center of many, many important historical events. Robert Caro's currently, uh, currently out fourth book, A Lyndon Johnson, relies heavily upon uh, contributions by Nicholas Katzenbach. Let's say one of the most riveting TV documentaries I ever saw showed, the, uh, on film, the 
actions being taken by JFK and his brother, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, as they confronted the situation at the University of Alabama, where George Wallace was trying to ban black students from entering. By virtue of nationalizing the Alabama National Guard, they were able to circumvent Wallace by uh, (laughs) taking away his authority to direct National Guard troops to prevent black students from entering. Instead, then forced him to admit the students. On film, in this documentary, you can see uh, his bald head sweating under the Alabama sun, Katzenbach walking up to the entrance of a university building and handing George Wallace a proclamation saying he must obey the law. And although I'm too, too young to remember this, apparently at the time the nation watched this on television as it happened. Well, Katzenbach certainly took part in some of the epic decisions made by uh, John F. Kennedy and later Lyndon Baines Johnson. The great curiosity of his life, for me, was the memo he sent in the wake of JFK's assassination. While the nation was in shock on November 25th, just three days after the murder, Katzenbach sent a memo to Johnson aide Bill Moyers urging that results of the FBI's investigation be made public to combat any notion that Lee Harvey Oswald had not acted alone, (laughs) which which you'd think that... uh, Rather than be concerned three days later that we convinced the public that Oswald acted alone, you'd actually would investigate to see whether he had. Said Katzenbach's legendary memo, the public must be satisfied that Oswald was the assassin, that he did not have Confederates who are still at large. Again, nice idea, but don't you think they should have investigated that first before publishing the conclusion? But indeed, four days after that memo, LBJ appointed some of the nation's most prominent figures to what became the Warren Commission, which ultimately concluded, oddly enough, that Oswald acted alone, a theory which, of course, is still disputed. Skeptics and conspiracy theorists have often cited Katzenbach's memo as a sign of an impending government cover-up, to which I would add, with pretty good cause. Reviewing his life, it was back in February of 1965 that LBJ picked Katzenbach to be his attorney general, but he held the post for less than two years due to feuding with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, supposedly his subordinate. He stepped down in October of 66 and a short time later got named Undersecretary of State, a post he held for the remainder of the Johnson administration and which led to an unhappy entanglement with the Vietnam War. In 1967, in testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Katzenbach made a controversial defense of the war's legality, citing the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which allowed the U.S. to repeal attacks and prevent further aggression. We would note that Senator Eugene McCarthy, former Radio Parallax guest, would later cite Katzenbach as a reason for running for president in 1968 as an anti-war candidate. A decision that, of course, helped convince LBJ not to seek a second term. 1969, after the Johnson administration ended, Nicholas Katzenbach was appointed IBM's general counsel and helped represent the computer giant in its long fight against antitrust lawsuits filed by the government. They were eventually dismissed. More to his credit, in December of 1998, Katzenbach took part in a protest in Princeton against Republican efforts to impeach Bill Clinton. He also spoke as a witness for the president. I do have to say the attempted impeachment of Bill Clinton back in 1998 was one of the most reprehensible political things I think I've ever seen. Well, at least in American politics. Katzenbach was in fact an alumnus of Princeton and the Yale Law School. He studied at Oxford for four years as a Rhodes Scholar and was a professor of law, first at Yale and also at the University of Chicago. 
When JFK got the Democratic nomination in 1960, he invited Nick Katzenbach to join his administration. Let's get the hell out of politics and talk about some science to close today's program. Here's a science-slash-medical-slash-biological item that is just irresistible from New Scientist, May 5th issue. We've now figured out how it is our skin keeps us waterproof. Piece by Helen Thompson noted that considering we know it like the back of our hands, we understand surprisingly little about how our skin forms the watertight barrier that protects us from our varied environments. Now, the basic molecular structure of the skin layer that forms this barrier has been identified. The discovery could pave the way for new technology to deliver drugs directly through the skin. Previous studies had pinned the barrier down to the outermost layer of skin, the stratum corneum, and more specifically to the fat or lipids occupying the space between the cells in that layer. But to get a clearer view of that fat, Lars Norlen at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm and colleagues shaved a layer of skin from the forearms of five volunteers, then put the tissues into a high-pressure freezer, then immediately cooled it to below 140. When they do that, uh, apparently every atom is believed to be preserved in its native location. The researchers then sliced the tissue into layers just 25 to 50 nanometers thick and examined those under an electron microscope. What they saw was a surprise. The lipids, or fats, were arranged in a way that no one had ever seen before in nature. Now, if you'll recall your high school biology, certain lipids have a hydrophilic head and a hydrophobic tail. In other words, their heads like to be in water and their tails want to be out of water. Normally, the two tails point in the same direction, giving molecules a kind of a hairpin-like appearance. And this bilayer is uh, basic, the basic structure of most cell membranes. What they found in Sweden was that in our skin, the lipid molecules between the cells of the stratum corneum are backwards. The two tails of the molecules are pointing outwards in opposite directions. And these lipid molecules are stacked on top of one another in an alternating fashion to form a condensed structure that's much more impermeable than a normal lipid bilayer. So what this means for us, that this uniquely structured fatty layer is preventing any water from getting past in either direction, except where the skin layer is modified to form pores. Interesting stuff. And of course, there's a great hope that in the future we'll be able to administer a lot more medicines through the skin instead of, uh, well, (laughs) through the skin by putting something on the skin rather than poking through it with a needle. Same issue of the magazine has a breakthrough regarding... uh, pigeons and how they're able to locate. Apparently, uh, researchers in Houston, Texas, at Baylor College, collected some homing pigeons and inserted electrodes into their brains to record the activity of individual neurons. They then messed around with the intensity and angle of magnets surrounding the birds and noticed that 53 neurons in one area of the brainstem were especially active which is pretty good evidence that those neurons probably link to the brain's internal map and so act as kind of a biological GPS system. We've long known that birds can do this. We're now trying to figure out just how. We still have yet yet to determine how they're detecting that magnetic feel in the first place, but uh, I know that there are magnetite or little uh, iron filing tight like uh, crystals that are biologically formed in uh, in these bird brains, and that's, that's probably what they're using, but... Um, Research must continue to nail this one down.
Because it does turn out that a lot of animals, including humans, apparently have little uh, little magnetite crystals uh, in our skulls. But uh, based on my experience with a lot of people I know, <laughs> they're apparently not functional. <laughs> At least in their cases. God, how I love new scientists. An early edition, May 21st, has an article... Um, Describing the first glimpse at the birth of DNA. Well, it's a possible glimpse into how uh, DNA and RNA sort of interfaced. It's been long believed by scientists that, uh, that early life began using RNA, and yet almost all life forms except certain viruses, which are kind of dubious as life forms, but at any rate, most biological entities use DNA to code, uh, to, to code genetic information. So the question has been, if we start out with RNA dictating uh, life, how do we switch to DNA? Well, there are certain viruses that have developed, developed the ability to reverse transcribe. In other words, turn RNA back into DNA. Included among those retroviruses is the notorious uh, HIV virus. But the researchers studying primitive organisms uh, went up to California's Lassen Volcanic National Park and filtered out virus-sized particles from some lake water. They sequenced the DNA and found that there were genes that were made of DNA that looked like the gene for a protein coat that came from an RNA virus. It appears somehow this RNA information had been transcribed into DNA. And by using computer crunching of data, they've concluded that a lot of these uh, DNA sequences that Craig Vetner pulled out of the Earth's oceans uh, show evidence of other Organisms being able to do the same thing. This, of course, does not exactly show us how uh, life managed this trick four billion years ago when, uh, when we didn't have cells floating around, but um, it does move us toward a better understanding of that. Final item, piece from their February 11th issue, titled One Minute with David Bowman. David Bowman is a professor of plant ecology at the University of Tasmania in Australia, and he came up with a rather novel idea that we could help Australia and help elephants by turning them loose on the southern continent. The magazine asked him that, since Australia has a notorious history of ecological problems caused by alien species, why introduce elephants, given the disastrous consequences of introducing cane toads, rabbits, feral cats, and camels? Said Bowman, we've disrupted our ecology dramatically, and to stabilize it from unintended consequences to previous introductions and prior extinctions, we need fresh thinking. Clearly, the current management strategy is not optimal and has to be changed. To which he added that not all introductions in Australia have been bad. Bantang, a type of wild cattle, thrives in the wild in Australia, but uh, is endangered in its native Southeast Asia. And as to why elephants should be introduced, Bowman says that, well... We've introduced invasive grasses like gamba grass from Africa, which is a major source of fuel for Australian wildfires. This could radically transform our savannas. Noted 5% of Australia burned last year, and some fires were the size of Tasmania, which is a pretty big island. So he said this is clearly dysfunctional. I can't think of a way of controlling invasive fire-prone grasses in our savannas without large herbivores. In Australia, the option of reintroducing large herbivores that used to live here doesn't exist because all the big marsupials are now extinct. So we'd have to introduce a non-native herbivore. You know what? I like this guy's thinking. I think we may just need, may need to make a call down to the University of Tasmania and get this guy on the line directly. At any rate, 
Our thanks to General Manager Neil Rood, as well as America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Time me kangaroo down. Time me kangaroo down. Sport. Time me kangaroo down.